Good evening, everybody. Great to see you all here. Sorry, it was a little slow to get going there. Saw that thumbs up, though, which means we've got our regulars with us telling me that, that we're all set and we're ready to go. Um, welcome. Happy New Year, everybody. Um, I'm excited, excited to have this new year to discuss things with you. And boy, did we get off to a good start with the speakership battle. Obviously, we're going to be talking about some of those dynamics. I'm going to ask you guys to do me a big favor because I did get started a little bit late. If those of you, especially my regular followers, could do me a big, big solid and invite other people to join the discussion. Let's try to get some people in uh, early to kind of build out the mic drop family it would be very uh, important to me, um, be meaningful, um, allows us to kind of broaden the range of the discussion and hopefully ask some of the questions that some of the people um, out there might be afraid to ask. But always good to have more. More is better. Um, we are here on the Colin Show, Wednesdays, 5.30 p.m. Pacific, 8.30 p.m. Eastern. I'm hoping you guys had a fantastic, fantastic holiday season. New Year's Eve was a little bit hairy for me. I was actually out in Park City uh, driving back. And, yeah, I did drive from Utah all the way back to California. Weather was not was not helpful. Weather in Sacramento, Northern California is atrocious right now. I know the entire country is dealing with a lot of fallout from winter weather. Um, but be cozy, um, pull up your popcorn and watch a good speakership fight. I think that's what everybody should be doing at this time of year. We have so much to cover, so much to cover this year, um, because this, what you are watching right now on the house of, uh, how the floor of the house of representatives is a precursor of things to come. It was actually on Jennifer Horn, Horn's, uh, show doing some Twitter spaces with her earlier. If some of you guys joined in, give me a thumbs up. If you guys heard some of that conversation, because I thought it was fantastic. It was Jim Swift from the Bulwark, a couple of thumbs up. People listened in Jim Swift, real sharp dude from the Bulwark, the editor in chief there, a guy I've known for a long time, sharp, sharp dude, Jennifer Horn, of course, from, um, from the Lincoln project days. You guys remember us when we were putting the bands together. She asked me to come on board to kind of talk about some of these dynamics. We're going to talk about them tonight. Uh, maybe I should have Jennifer Horn on here, Peg. I think you're absolutely right. She's a dear, dear friend. We're staying very close. She's, she's, she's been supportive in so, so many ways throughout the years. And it's great to see her voice back in the space, fighting for what she believes in, pushing for more uh, democracy, for more transparency, for more enfranchisement, voting rights. Um, I just love her brain, love what she does. And I'm... Um, Going to start jumping into kind of what we began with this conversation on tonight. Jump into the queue early, guys, because there's a lot of questions to ask. I really want to make this talk show a, that, exactly that, a talk show. If you guys want to hear me kind of run on with the soliloquies, I'm fine with that. A lot of you guys, I think, still tune in. I feel a little bit bad because I feel like I'm occupying the time. I don't even really view this as my show. I view this as our show. I want to make sure that we're getting all of those voices heard, that people are being um, listens to, and then we're getting all the questions asked that need to be asked. So jump into that queue if you've got questions, because I want to hear them. I'm going to try to add, answer them. So first time in 100 years, uh, we're seeing something happen on the floor of the House of Representatives that we have never, or I don't say never, but over a century. We haven't seen it over a century. And even then, I don't think it went to as many vote counts as we have at this point in time. So let me talk structurally about what that means, what's happening. I also want to talk about what it's not, because there's a lot of misinformation not conscious, not malicious, just I think people not understanding the process of what is actually what we're actually going through as we're trying to find out who the next speaker of the house is going to be. And then we'll talk about some of um, what I see happening. Um, I'm, of course, not an expert in this space because you know what? Nobody is. But I do know the House GOP conference pretty well. 
For those of you that don't know, I've known Kevin McCarthy uh, for 25 years. Uh, I'm not going to suggest we're so close that our families would take vacations together, but what I will say is we were in the Young Republicans together, uh, where Kevin was a national leader. I was much more involved in California politics. I knew him as a young staffer for Congressman Bill Thomas in the Bakersfield area, the same area that he represents. Bill Thomas was a towering force in Washington, D.C., very, very smart operator. He was as conservative as they come, but and this is really important. If you want to understand Kevin McCarthy, and, and we, we talked a little bit last time and somebody shared and put in the link to the New Yorker article. If somebody wants to do that again, stick that into the room chat um, where I was talking a little bit about Kevin and some of his background, this biography piece that the New Yorker did on Kevin, just because I've seen his, his politics evolve over the past 25 years. I've seen his career evolve over the past 25 years and it would probably behoove everybody to know a little bit about some of the dynamics of, of who Kevin is and what that means. So there's that chat moderator, put that up in there. If you want to take a read at that, it's a little bit long form, but I think it's really important, especially at this point in time, as you're watching some of these demographics, I'm sorry, some of these dynamics unfold, it really gives you a sense of who Kevin is. Thanks, Peg. It is, it is a great article. It's very insightful on, on, on Kevin. Um, I and a lot of others kind of um, offer some insight into to the character of the man that we were watching humiliate himself on the national stage. And I think if you read that article, you get a strong sense as to why he's going through this, why he's putting himself through this. Um, in short, in sum, Kevin McCarthy has always wanted to be the Speaker of the House, never wanted to be president, never wanted to go to the United States Senate. He's always wanted to be the Speaker of the House. Um, the two most poorly kept secrets in California politics were that Kevin McCarthy wanted to be the Speaker of the House and Alex Padilla, whom I've known Alex since he was a 26-year-old city council member in Los Angeles, wanted to be a United States Senator. Alex, of course, is a Senator. He was sworn in today as a, to, a, to a full uh, fully elected to term, and um, Kevin is struggling to get to be the speaker. And of course, I don't think he's going to get there, and I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. But let's talk about what being a speaker means. Uh, speaker of the House, again, when, when the Constitution was written, the Speaker of the House is elected by a majority of the members of Congress that were elected in that previous election cycle. You have to remember, the Constitution was written at a time before there were political parties. So we did not have, especially the duopoly that we have now, these two factions that are competing with their voices and with their votes to actually take control of the House as we know it today and as we have known it through most of our adult lives. That's not the way the founders ever envisioned it. In fact, they envisioned it not terribly unlike what we're watching now, a series of votes that would happen. They had hoped that one person would not be able to consolidate as much power as uh, we have seen in recent memory or as the way the system has evolved. They believed, most of them, when they were developing this, the, the, the articles of the Constitution, that there would be these competing groups and competing factions, that the passions, as they called them, of the mob, of the voters, would actually be filtered by these elites, by these elected representatives, going through the machinations that we're watching right now, Okay. So what we're watching right now looks very dysfunctional, but it's not something that wasn't envisioned by the founders, okay? So a lot of what I heard on Jennifer Horn's show today and what I was trying to swat back was that this is democracy in crisis. This is uh, somebody, uh, my, my good friend Jack, um, 
Um, you all know Jack. I've had him on the show before. He worked for me at the Lincoln Project. Coachella uh, was saying that this is the Republicans holding the Congress hostage. There's kind of this rhetoric that's getting heated up right now as we're watching this dysfunction, this kind of clown show that's happening on the Republican side of the aisle. Let me disabuse everybody of that notion. Democracy is not in crisis because the Republican Party is in crisis, and most specifically because the House GOP conference is in crisis. Okay, this isn't happening in the Senate. Okay, you're not watching this happen with Mitch McConnell. What you are watching happen is the factionalization of the Republican Party, and it's evident on a national stage because the Republicans took over the Congress. They took, took a majority of the Congress. And let me make that clear, too. Nobody's holding anything hostage. This is the majority party. Whether we like it or not, the Republicans are the majority of the U.S. House of Representatives, duly elected, and their job is to try to put together some semblance of governance. And they're obviously failing that. They're failing at the very basic element of the job. And it's why I think that we're going to see uh, a long two-year run of this sort of nonsense. This is going to last a while. This is not – I was asked today on the show earlier – are voters going to remember this? Are they going to be punished for this moment uh, in November? And the answer is no. No one's going to remember this. Why? Because it's going to get far, far worse. This is this is like the the the, the warm up. This is the opening act of the shit show that we're going to see for the next two years, guys. This is going to get far, far worse. Okay. I don't believe it's bad for the country. Incidentally, at least not at this point. I reserve judgment to, to back that back that statement off. The dysfunction in the House is a, is a symptom of the dysfunction in the party, okay? It's not like there was going to be any legislation passed anyway. Once the Democrats lost the majority, there, there's, no, there's no bills that are going to go through a GOP-controlled House. That, that Joe Biden's going to sign or that Schumer's going to allow to go through the Senate, okay? The good news for Democrats, if you're a Democrat, supporter of Biden and the, the Biden agenda they got so much done already that you can kind of check the, the, the win record, the win column, and put up enough W's there to, to make that, you know, something to be proud of, okay? There's, there isn't going to be much legislating going on. That, that's what happens when the opposite party takes control of one of the houses of Congress, and that's where we stand at this moment in time, Okay. So, but but let me let me back up a little bit. I was talking about parties and what they mean. Once we did coalesce, and it wasn't it didn't take very long after the founding, by by the way, of the country, to have political parties develop. Political parties uh, are relatively unorganized groups of individuals who share a common philosophy of government. That's what a political party is. At least it has been in the United States. That hasn't been the case and is not the case in a lot of democracies throughout the world. A lot of you guys know that I went to Brazil back in September. Most of those political parties are simple tools and functionaries to, to advance personal or business interests, like legitimately. We talk about Democrats wanting bigger government largely. They, they believe in the idea of government, government solutions to help people. The Republican philosophy used to be we support smaller government, the private sector, and pushing people to support and build themselves up before we look to government as a solution. That, of course, has been turned on its head, but at least there used to be the idea, or at least for since the, the end of the Civil War, the, the philosophical understanding that these two parties would, would push and pull 
and play a tug of war between the size and scope of government and what it should be and should not be doing in our lives. That is all gone, left with the Trump era, left with this rise of populist nationalism. As many of you guys have heard me talk in previous discussions, previous shows, I believe the right-left spectrum has kind of tilted on its head, where we're a much more populous country, a much more populous society, and there's probably going to be a weaker role for political parties going forward. That's what I see happening at this moment. Let me talk a little bit more about that, because I think if you read that Kevin McCarthy portrait in The New Yorker and you and you 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 kind of breathe in a little bit a little bit about what I'm going to say about what's happening in the Republican Party, it will start to give you some context of what is happening at this moment in time in Washington, D.C. Okay. But those of you that have been following the show, you know that I've been talking for some time about the the center right, the American right, the embodied by the Republican Party. There's always been a difference between what a conservative is, a true conservative, and the Republican Party. They are not the same thing. Okay? They're not the same thing. And that difference has created uh, an increased tension over the course of the past six, seven years with the rise of Donald Trump. Because Donald Trump is a lot of things, but one thing he is not is a conservative. And a conservative, this believer in the philosophy of smaller government, is precisely what Kevin McCarthy is or was and the school of thought that he came from. That's where he rose in the ranks to become the person he is in the Republican Party today. That tension is hitting kind of overload right now. It's, it's, it's hitting full tilt. We we'll get to that in just a second, but, 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 but hold on to that concept for a moment. If we look back historically, in, the, in recent history, to 2008 and the election of Barack Obama, what we see is the commensurate rise of what is known as the Freedom Caucus. The Freedom Caucus, ideologically, was really no different than the Republican Party that it existed. We call them the Tea Party back then, the rise of the Tea Party, this anti-Obama, the rise of birtherism, this movement, this, this rise of conspiracy theory, the rise of populist nationalism, really starts, that's where the seeds of this really start to dig in. Sarah Palin comes onto the national stage. But it's really important to understand this. And I ask this to, to people who don't grasp this all the time, especially journalists and media types, who talk about the rise of the Tea Party and the Freedom Caucus. Give me one position, give me just one, where the Tea Party had a different political position than the Republican Party as it existed. Now, of course, they can't. Because there was no philosophical difference between the Freedom Caucus and the Tea Party, which were the same, and the Republican Party, which we knew. The difference was in style and in tone. There was no philosophical difference. But what it did do is it made the Republican Party far more edgy, far more angry, and frankly, far more destructive than it ever had been. Up until 2008, you can say what you will. I mean, there's a good argument that this began with Gingrich in 1994. Some people who I dismiss are like, this has always been, you know, a white supremacist, extremist movement or blah, blah, blah. I kind of dismiss those people out of hand. But if you, you know, 1994 really started the culmination of re, re, dramatically restricting the size of government. Reagan talked about it, but never did it. 
Gingrich actually began the process of doing that, at least procedurally, in the House of Representatives, at House of Representatives and in the Congress. The trajectory from Reaganism to uh, Gingrich in 1994 to then the big leap from 94 to 2008 was the rise of this really, I think, ultimately destructive force, which we knew as the Tea Party, which was zero sum. We're not interested in cutting deals the way Gingrich did, for example, with Bill Clinton on welfare reform, reforming welfare as we know it. Those were conservative victories. Those were Republican victories. Gingrich was an operator within the House of Representatives. He rises to speaker, but he has a belief that government needs to work. He wants government to work through a conservative philosophy. That's the Mike Madrid school. That's the Ronald Reagan school. That's the Republican establishment. That's Liz Cheney. That's Dick Cheney. That's George W. Bush. That's all the old school Republicans that are now being summarily pushed out of the Republican Party. What is emerging is a, is a force that does not want to compromise. That was the Tea Party. Okay, That was that really in tone and in tenor and in tactics, the difference between Reagan conservatism, even Gingrich conservatism, and what we started to see with Palinism and kind of the rise of, of the Tea Party movement in 2008. Okay, y'all follow? Okay. So what happens from 2008 to 2016 is a metastasization of that movement. And it's the natural end product, by the way. It's the natural end product of having a zero-sum politics, wanting to shrink dramatically the size of government, not to make it work, to simply starve the beast, right? That was the language, Grover Norquist language, take government starve it or drown it in the bathtub, as he would say, like literally like get rid of it, not stop, not stop, by the way, delivering the services, especially if it was the military, but to stop paying for it as a way to starve it. Okay. Really, really destructive philosophy. Um, but then what you see then is the rise of Trumpism, which is not conservatism. It's simply anti-establishment. It's simply an attack on the institution. The institutions of the country got so toxic to the American right, such little faith in the institution of government that it started to be viewed as an enemy, okay? And this is the real arc of conservatism, the real arc of the Republican Party from the late 80s and 90s when I, when I became a Republican, which was how do we make people's lives better through a smaller government philosophy? That arc from the 1980s and 90s to 2016, where it became government, I'm sorry, 1994, where government becomes the enemy, the rise of the Tea Party caucus in 2008, and then with the rise of Trumpism, it becomes something completely different. And that completely different is this, government can and should be used if it benefits your friends and if it helps impose your worldview on your enemy, okay? Donald Trump never gave a speech about the virtues of smaller government because he doesn't believe in smaller government. He believes very strongly in using government if it squashes his enemies. He's, he's all about police force as long as it's going in and attacking Antifa or Black Lives Matter or making sure that Muslims don't come into the country or increasing border security to make sure Mexicans don't come. That's what this has always been about. Okay, Donald Trump is not anti-government. He is pro-government so long as it's government 
advancing his and his tribe's interest. That's what nationalism is. Okay, it's using all power, private sector power and power of the government, public sector to impose your worldview on other people. That's why the Dobbs decision comes out and overturned Roe versus Wade. That's why there's potential attacks on marriage equality. It's about removing and eliminating rights for people that do not conform to your worldview. That is not conservatism under any definition. So we we are, we we have bastardized that word to to somehow make it sound like conservatism equals republicanism equals nationalism. I know this sounds very academic, but words do matter, and they're extremely important if you want to understand what's happening. Bottom line is, McCarthy comes of age when I do in the 80s and 90s. The Freedom Caucus gains more power in the mid-2000s, largely with in response to Obama being elected, and then you have Trump in 2016. Those three factions still exist to varying degrees within the Republican Party in the House Conference. The fastest shrinking, and I would suggest maybe even eliminated part of the House Conference is Kevin McCarthy's wing, the establishment wing, the Reagan wing. There are, this was pointed out today on Jennifer Horn's show, there are no never Trumpers in Congress anymore. Liz Cheney is gone. Adam Kinzinger is gone. Peter, uh, uh, Anthony Gonzalez is, is gone. William Hurt is gone. The only one that exists really is Mitt Romney, and Romney uh, is in the Senate. Okay, does, I'm not trying to be dismissive, but he's not on the House side. There is nobody in the House that is anti-Trump. That does that, and and that means the establishment wing has basically been vanquished. Kevin McCarthy is essentially the last establishment Republican standing. He cut his deal to say, I will, I will give up everything I believe in, everything I've worked on for 30 years, I will forsake it if you can keep me in power and make me speaker. That's the trajectory of Kevin McCarthy's life and, life and his career. It's why he knew what happened on January 6th was evil, that it was destructive, that it was designed to overthrow the government, and he said so, and he's on tape. He was in the well of the House saying that. He was caught on on um, or taped and recorded on conversations that he was having with other members saying exactly that. We all know what I'm talking about. And then 24 hours, 48 hours later, he flies down to Mar-a-Lago to bend the knee and kiss the ring to try to curry favor with Trump because he still recognizes he's going to need those votes if he's ever going to become speaker in the upcoming midterm elections. That process of humiliating himself, that process of laying himself out face down in front of the you know, Donald Trump begins or continues, I should say, this process of him capitulating on his character and allowing the rise and strengthening of this new faction, not the establishment wing where Kevin's from, not the Freedom Caucus, which has been so disruptive from the 90s to up until the Trump era, but the Matt Gates, Lauren Boebert, Paul Gosart, up until Marjorie Taylor Greene, I'm going to talk about her in just a second because it's fascinating what she's doing. Notice you're not seeing her in any of these debates. I'll explain why in just a second. But Marjorie Taylor Greene is part of that performative aspect of the Republican Party. That wing does not trust Kevin McCarthy. It never has because he is from the establishment. He's from my wing of the party that doesn't really exist anymore. Okay? They view us as bad as the Democrats. We are, we are the swamp dwellers. We are the people who were the globalists. 
We believed in reasonable immigration um, laws. We were the ones who wanted an America to be, we didn't like the Russians. We knew that the Russians were a threat. Okay, we, we, we believed in making government work through a, through a small government philosophy. They're not interested in that, okay? That's why you see this intransigence that has taken hold over the Republicans on the House floor. This is foundationally a different dynamic in the House conference than what brought down Paul Ryan or John Boehner, okay? John Boehner and Paul Ryan were dealing with dueling factions. They were both establishment Republicans trying to satisfy the growing Freedom Caucus. They were not very successful at it. Both of them could not ride the tiger and they were bucked off of it because they had the Chamber of Commerce support. They had the major Republican donor support. They had the Wall Street support. The vote of the Republican voter was changing. It was becoming more populist, more anti-institution, more anti-expertise. And as a result, they threw the, the, the members that reflected that, that voter populism threw off those leaders. For those of you who are really keeping score back in the day, too, you'll remember Kevin McCarthy was supposed to be elected speaker before Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan was the compromise candidate because Kevin McCarthy had, had an illicit affair that was being used against him. And he could not put the votes together when he had 30 or 40 more members than he does now. He couldn't put the votes together last time. Paul Ryan, who did not want to be speaker, became the compromise candidate. He comes off of being the vice president, or he actually would, would run for vice president from the House seat. That Paul Ryan was the compromise candidate. Everybody trusted Paul Ryan because he was a numbers guy. He was a financial hawk. He wasn't really interested in the politics the way that Kevin McCarthy lives in the politics. And so Kevin couldn't put those votes together. Follow? Anybody remember those days? Anybody remembering this stuff? Hope I'm not losing everybody with all of this history because it's not really chronological. So if I'm if I'm if I'm losing people, let me know. Okay. But so that's that's the history of how we get to this moment. Is Paul Ryan is plan B when McCarthy couldn't put the votes together last time. Boehner gets kicked out by the far right of the party. McCarthy makes a run for it, realizes he doesn't have the votes. They go to Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan says, fine, I'll do it to keep. Uh, unity in the family and for, to prevent this thing from being a complete shit show. McCarthy steps aside. Ryan ascends to speaker. That's the history. Okay. McCarthy, then Ryan, you know, steps out after the Trump era. He says, I'm done. I'm checking out. I can't do this Trumpism anymore because Paul Ryan, say what you will about him, is a true conservative, stuck to those beliefs. And he was also the first to call Donald Trump a racist, if you remember the House conference. And he was an acolyte of Jack Kemp, one of my political heroes, somebody who believes in looking out for the poor, looking out for the least among us, somebody who believed that conservatism could be a tool to help lift up the poor where progressivism and liberalism had failed. That was what Jack Kemp stood for. That's what the Republican Party I joined believed in. Okay? You can argue the merits of that. We'll do that on another show. The bottom line is that's who Paul Ryan was. It's why he was trusted by all the factions of the party. He checks out and says, I'm done. I can't do this after the 2018 midterms. Republicans suffer historic losses. He retires from Congress and says, I'm checking out, not doing this Trumpism shit anymore. 
McCarthy becomes the leader of the House Conference. 2020, Republicans pick up more seats, even though they lose the presidency. 2022, this last November, they pick up a majority, which is much smaller than people expected. And he's got a five, McCarthy has a five vote majority and is this close, literally this close to becoming what he's always wanted to be since I knew him when we were kids in the business together, which is Speaker of the House. Okay, sorry about that long story. That's the trajectory. The dilemma that Kevin McCarthy faces, which is completely different than Boehner and Ryan was, is there are three factions in this conference, not two. Remember, uh, Boehner and Ryan could not manage the, the, the growing factionalization in the House conference as it was. There are now three, okay? There are three. The old establishment wing, of which Kevin is in a very small minority, there are not very many of them. He's like one of maybe one or five or ten, okay? That was Liz Cheney. That was Adam Kinzinger. That was the rational wing of the party as it was that was, that was interested in governing with a conservative philosophy. The Freedom Caucus, which was dominant from 2008 until 2016, takes power and starts to drive the change in the conference. They kick Boehner out. They kick Ryan out. Enter Donald Trump and the performative nature of the party, and you've got people that are simply not interested in the establishment wing of the party and view the Kevin McCarthy's just as bad as the Democrats, okay? That's why they will not vote for him, okay? So where Kevin's got to manage this dynamic if he wants to become speaker. So what does that mean? Well, what does all of that mean, Mike, in terms of what happened in the speakership fight? Let me talk about the tactics now, what that means. Kevin McCarthy knew he did not have the votes yesterday. He knew he didn't. Okay, he's, he's that good of a vote counter. Biggs was saying, Congressman Biggs was saying, I've got between five and, and 20 votes. Publicly, he was saying that. Gates was out there saying McCarthy doesn't have the votes. I am not really close to this, but I'm close enough with enough folks to know that Kevin didn't have the votes. We knew that it, with a five vote majority, he was not going to be able to cobble this together. So what does he do? He starts to try to win this thing tactically, tries to win it through a street fight. He does things like, listen really closely here, he moves his furniture into the speaker's office. People think that that was a mistake. Like he thought he had it in the bag and moved his furniture into the office because he was unaware. That is not what happened. He was moving it in as a show of momentum to those members that were holding out to make them believe that the votes were coming together for him. That's what he was doing. He knew he didn't have the votes, okay? We then enter yesterday. We vote on the House and he loses very important vote count. 10 votes go for Congressman Biggs, who is publicly saying he was going to challenge, from Arizona, he was publicly going to challenge McCarthy. This is the Trump faction. 10 Republican votes go up. So these, the numbers are going to sound really in the weeds here, but they're very important. 10 go up for Biggs. Nine go up for Jim Jordan. So McCarthy has 19 votes. He can't hold 19 votes from his own conference to elect him speaker. Okay? This is important because who these members voted for tells you everything about why they're voting. The 10 that voted for Biggs would, will never vote for Kevin McCarthy for either personal reasons or whatever reasons. 
the fact that Biggs had been out there publicly being anti-McCarthy, if people went up on a vote for Biggs, you were telling the world there is no deal to be had. There is nothing that can be struck. I would rather vote for a Democrat, and I hate Democrats, than vote for Kevin McCarthy. Okay? And 10 go up there. Nine go up for Jordan. What those nine were saying is, I'm anti-Kevin McCarthy, but there's something to be had by putting up those votes. Okay? I There's a deal. I can be I can be bought. We can horse trade a little bit. And I'm gonna I'm gonna cool my jets here. I'm anti-Kevin, and I'm voting this way because the populist base of the party does not like Kevin McCarthy, by the way. Tucker Carlson hates Kevin McCarthy. Fox News does not like Kevin McCarthy. Okay? And the base of the GOP, the base voter, does not like Kevin McCarthy. And I guarantee you, dollar to a donut, they like him a hell of a lot less after the last couple of days. This is getting harder for Kevin at every level. Okay? So he puts up the votes. The number is 19. 10 for Biggs, 9 for Jordan. Second round comes up. Okay? What happens? Those votes start to consolidate away from Biggs and behind Jordan, and the number stays the same at 19, but they're moving to Jordan. It's the, Those 10 were very clearly never going to vote for Kevin, but what they were trying to do is find and push a, a, an alternative candidate for speaker under Jordan. Okay? So they move. This is every, every and here, this is very important if you're watching this play out. Every vote that is taken, the political dynamics of every vote are 180 degrees different than all of the other votes that were taken before it. The politics change entirely, except for the Democrats, who are just going to sit there and watch the Democrats, you know, or the Republicans spin around and light themselves on fire. The dynamics of every one of the six votes that has been taken have all been completely different. But what you're looking for is what the number is that Kevin needs, which is five Republicans. He can lose up to five and still become Speaker. He's at 10 people saying, never going to vote for you under any under any circumstances. It's not going to happen. Those people get stronger every time Kevin loses a vote. Not just because they're showing that they are that they've got the yank and that they've got the courage, but they're also telling DC and all the lobbyists in town and the Democrats is even if Kevin were to become speaker, which he can't without their votes, but let's, even if he were, they are the ones that control Congress because they will hold out. And the more they hold out, the more they are needed, the more resolve that they show, the more that they are needed to get a deal done, to get to a majority, to have anything passed through the House. You follow? That's what's going on. That takes me to Marjorie Taylor Greene. Where the hell is she at? This person can't shut up about anything. Notice you have not seen her, except for saying McCarthy. Oh, that's all she does. She's not going to the floor. She's not making a spectacle. She's not tweeting too much. She's doing a little, a couple of side shows, but she's not doing a whole lot. But she's quiet. Why? Why is Marjorie Taylor Greene so quiet? This is one of the beautiful stories. This is why I love politics still. As much as I hate politics now, I really love it because of this dynamic. Marjorie Taylor Greene cut her deal with Kevin McCarthy early. Never cut your deal early, by the way. The people who cut their deals early, nine times out of ten, you're going to get screwed. You want to be the last holdout because that's where the most leverage is. The key is you don't want to wait so long that everybody cuts a deal in front of you. So the biggest rookie mistake is cutting your deal early. Marjorie Taylor Greene cut her deal early, and what she did was 
she did two things. She she signaled to the world what it was, what her deal was, which is she wanted subpoena power and she wanted to be on the oversight committee. Marjorie Taylor Greene, more than anything, wants to be the lead person leading the fight against Hunter Biden and Joe Biden. That's what she wanted. And she went to Kevin and said, if you give me this, I will not only vote for you, I will publicly start pushing my members, Gates, Boebert, Gosart, Biggs, the crazies, I will bring my votes with you, okay? That's the deal that was cut. Kevin says, done, that's an easy deal. You can have whatever the hell you want. Take the lamps, take the carpet, take the furniture too if you want, I don't care. You can have that, but just get me the votes and make me speaker. She cuts the deal and problem is she walks out, publicly says I'm with Kevin and nobody is behind her. She's left out there doing exactly what she was been critical of everybody in the House conference doing, which was cutting a deal with the powers that be, rookie mistake. She thinks she's far more powerful than she is. She thinks she's far more influential than she is. She's cut a deal with Kevin and she's got to be out there publicly supporting him. Think about this. If you had made your whole career being anti-Kevin, anti-establishment, anti-Republican, right, anti-leader of the Republican Party, then you cut your deal with them, the first person to cut your deal and show, oh, no, no, I'm part of you, I'm with you, and then you can't put the votes together? It means, frankly, you got outsmarted by Lauren Boebert, which is what happened. Lauren Boebert, who won by 500 votes in a district she should have won by six or seven points, is now in a better position than Marjorie Taylor Greene because Boebert has held out. So whoever the next speaker is going to be, Boebert will in all likelihood have far more influence and be able to cut him up and has, will cut a much better deal to get her vote late than Marjorie Taylor Greene did for selling out early to the guy who's going to lose. It's one of the great stories that people aren't talking about yet because nobody's watching it that closely, but that's what's gone on here. That's the dynamic that is happening. That's why Marjorie Taylor Greene is so damn quiet is because she can't deliver on her end of the deal. She brought literally no votes but one, and, and Kevin needed all of those votes from the crazy caucus to come over. She delivered none of them. She's delivered one, and they're all holding out. So she has completely, completely undermined her credibility with the crazy caucus, completely under, undermined her ability to talk on a national stage on Twitter or on social media about being the anti-Kevin candidate because she went out there early. She went out there first and made a huge rookie mistake, didn't have the patience or the experience to understand the play. You let the, the game play out before you make your move. She jumped early. She wanted to get what she wanted. What she wanted was the ability to lead that caucus and drive the fight. Kevin gives it to her. That's an easy give. Give the crazies what they want. Just bring the other crazies with you. She says, fine. She walks out and can't deliver. Now they're both screwed. Marjorie Taylor Greene can't deliver the caucus and Kevin can't put the votes together. They're both screwed. Because when Kevin ultimately doesn't win the speakership, Marjorie Taylor Greene was now a Kevin McCarthy lieutenant and that will stick on her and that stench will be on her for the rest of her career. And don't think for a second that Lauren Boebert is going to let her forget about it. Okay, that's what's going on there. That's a sideshow. But bottom line is these three factions of the Republican Party cannot be consolidated. And the reason why is this is because the Republican Party no longer has a philosophical underpinning. We're watching something very unique in American history happening. 
which is there are these broader movements where the political parties no longer have this common glue of a common philosophy that have organized political parties over the past 250 years. Everybody talks about Nancy Pelosi being a legislative master, and she is. I think she's one of the, probably the four or five great speakers. She's certainly the greatest in living memory, probably since Sam, wow, a long time, okay? So anyway, um, <laughs> sorry, I was about to go off on a, on a long tangent on, on former speakers. Um, Pelosi, people didn't think that she was going to be able to put together the coalition between people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, and, and uh, Omar and the squad, right? Along with people like Tim Ryan and cons more conservative Tony Cardenas, but more conservative members of the House Democratic Conference. But she did. She was able to, to, to bring together these very wide-ranging, disparate opinions to get major legislation accomplished. Build Back Better. Interestingly, three or four of those Democrats, as you'll remember, to get the deal done, didn't go up on that vote. Ilhan Omar did not. I don't think AOC went up on the Build Back Better vote. I may be wrong about that. But there's three or four of the House Progressive Caucus, the Ro Khanna types, that did not go up. And she found Republican votes to backfill it and got enough Republican votes to put the deal together, which is part of her mastery. But my point is this. My point is as long as there's a common philosophy – which there is in the Democratic Party because it's a healthy functioning party, you can cut deals. You can give people stuff to recognize that 50, 60, 70, 80% of what they want and what they're trying to advance is the best that they can get and they'll take that deal. If there is no common philosophy, all you're left is with personalities. And that's where the Republican Party is at right now, okay? There's, it's all personality driven. There's no real ideological difference between Kevin McCarthy and Matt Gates. okay? There's a style difference, but in terms of governance, they're not interested in governance anymore. It's simply about political theater and personalities. You can't manage a conference like that. You can't manage a coalition like that. I don't want to say it's, it's impossible, but it's virtually impossible. It's, it's very close to being impossible. And in fact, I would suggest that the worst thing that could happen to Kevin McCarthy is not being humiliated for three or four more days of doing this, which is probably going to happen. It would be if he actually won the speakership because he is so weakened. He has been so humiliated and he will be so ineffective as speaker that he will be remembered in all American history as somebody who, who weakened the institution of the speakership to such low levels that that will be his legacy. The worst thing that could happen to Kevin McCarthy right now is he would become a speaker. He can't see that because he's a politician who's this close to realizing what he thinks his dream was. But if he were to accomplish it, it would be the worst possible thing for him. So the, the fact that you have nationalists who support government for their own tribal purposes and anti-government conservatives in the same party mean that this coalition is has no glue. They don't belong in the same party together. That's different than the Democrats, where you have conservative Democrats like Klobuchar and progressive Democrats like AOC. They do belong in the same party together. They have very different beliefs about the size and the scope of government, 
But here you've got an anti-government force and uh, typical conservatism and nationalist influences, which believe in using the power of government to bludgeon its opponents. Those are diametrically opposed philosophies. And so it's not just the fact that Kevin McCarthy personally doesn't have the personal skills to bring this across. It's not just that he failed before and there's hold up for the same reasons. There are literal tactical reasons why the coalition cannot come together and it gets worse for the Republicans. Okay. The worst part is it's evident from six rounds of voting that there is no plan B. Okay. The first plan B was let's go with Biggs. That was round one. Round two is let's go with Jordan. Round three, then votes start going off to Byron Donalds, right, from Florida, black Republican. Dan Donald, by the way, votes for himself, which is fascinating. And the vote count in opposition to Kevin grows from 19 to 21. Doesn't sound like a lot, but it's actually very, very big because it means that the vote count is moving away from Kevin. And every time there is a vote, it's going to be in the mind of all the other Republicans is that we can't put this together We've got to find a plan B. My prediction, again, from the beginning was going to be that Jim Jordan would win the speakership in the fourth round. Obviously, I was wrong. The main reason is because it's clear Jim Jordan does not want this and would not take it because he's not an idiot. No Republican who has half a brain wants to be speaker because it's an impossible, untenable position right now. There's no worse job. I don't care how much you hate your job right now. I don't care how much you despise going in and working for your boss. Your boss is not 212 crazy ass Republicans, okay, that are going to be destroying you on the public stage every day for the next two years. Nobody wants that job. Now, it may go to a Scalise, Steve Scalise, Jordan clearly has taken himself out of contention and doesn't want it. Usually what happens when a, when, a, when a leader can't put the votes together, one of their lieutenants comes in the same way Paul Ryan came in and filled the void when Kevin McCarthy couldn't put the votes together. That's how it works on a healthy party. What we have right now is Kevin who wants the speakership for just pure crass political ambition, but nobody behind him wants that job. Everybody wants to cut their deal to get everything else that they want without the weight and the burden of having to be speaker and managing and babysitting 212 crazy people. Okay, that's why nobody wants the job. So here's my prediction on what's likely to happen. Okay, I believe that the next speaker of the House will be a Republican, put up with Republican votes, and it's a name that nobody is thinking about right now because the compromise candidate is not likely to come from the leadership as it currently exists under McCarthy, and it's probably not even one of the leaders of the factions as they exist, okay? It's not gonna be Gates, it's not gonna be Boebert, it's not gonna be the chair of the House Freedom Caucus, it's not gonna be Kevin or Jordan, might be Scalise, I could be right, could be wrong on that one, who the hell knows? My strong suspicion is it's gonna be a backbencher that comes out as a compromise candidate probably from the Freedom Caucus, who was a big Trumper, but again, somebody who has been in the third, fourth, fifth, sixth row of the conference, not a leadership, not the name that you know, but simply because they're not known, because they weren't fire breather, because they weren't seeking headlines, is exactly the quality that they're looking for in a speaker once we go through another series or round of this. Now, at this moment, remember, the House convened at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 o'clock uh, West Coast time, 
McCarthy and his team right now are working diligently to see what kind of deals they can cut to get the conference number down. If the vote that comes up tomorrow, okay, I think they're convening tomorrow or over the weekend. I'm hoping they convene tomorrow because we need to get this damn thing done. If that number from 21 comes down under 21, it could, it will lengthen the process of how many votes we go to because it's going to keep Kevin locked into this contest, even though he can't get there. And remember, nobody wants this job, so there is no plan B. Okay. It will probably take four or five days of this humiliating experience for the conversation emanating from the back benches of the conference to start saying, we need to start thinking about another speaker because Kevin can't get there. This looks really bad and it's going to start doing political damage to the party, meaning all of us. We got to find somebody else. Everybody else's baggage is too big. Let's find somebody who doesn't want the job, who comes from the back bench, who can lead the organization because it's so fucked up that it has to be somebody who has not been complicit in everything that went on. By the way, if this sounds for, for crazy people like me, but if this sounds at all like the papal selection for Pope Francis after St. Benedict, who just passed away, God rest his soul, right? That's exactly what happened, is, is Francis was elected as a backbencher who was never involved in the politics of the Curia because the corruption that was happening in the Catholic Church was so deep that anybody who was in any kind of leadership was complicit. The only way to continue the organization and move the church admission forward was to elect somebody who was completely uninvolved, who, who had no desire to be pope. That's why they tapped Francis. Francis becomes pope, and it helps the party, the, sorry, the church, the party, whatever, you know, tomato, tomato, move further down the line. So this isn't just, well, that's the politics of the Curia. They're actually exactly like the politics of the party, the Republican Party at this moment in time. So with that, probably talking a little bit too much. Um, Peg, you're asking some questions. Oh, there's Peg. Let me just, let me get to questions now. I've been talking quite a bit. So let's start taking, let's start taking some people. Uh, jump, jump into the queue, by the way, guys. Let's get, let's get into the, the, the question uh, part of this so that we can start getting some of, of the, the palace intrigue stuff addressed. Go ahead and unmute Peg and ask answer some questions. Uh, hi. So am I unmuted now? Peg, you there? I'm here. Uh, I'm there. I'm here. Am I unmuted? Can you guys hear me? Yes. Can you hear Peg? Can anybody hear me? You can hear Peg. I can't. Let me check. It's probably something I'm doing here. I'm probably muted somewhere. Oh. Can you guys hear me? Uh, there we are. There you are, Peggy. Oh, uh, oh, thanks, Mike. Yeah, sorry about I that. Thanks. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Hi, Mike. Um, so the three factions. Yes. Are anti-government, and it went very fast for me. Okay, there's three factions. Right. There's, there's what I'm going to call the establishment faction. Okay. These are your traditional conservatives. These were Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, Lincoln Project type guys. And Kevin that's where Kevin McCarthy came from. He right. has moved Adam Kinzinger, Lincoln Project type guys, 
And Kevin, can I ask where Kevin McCarthy came from? He right. has moved to the right to follow to the right to follow the party's base. Okay, these are people that actually don't think government is evil. They just believe that it needs to be more efficient, more transparent, smaller to help deliver services. Got the, it. The Freedom Caucus, that second central piece. This is the Tea Party folks. Right. These guys came on the scene in two thousand and eight. These guys are very zero sum. They're, they're yes. very draconian. These are the guys that want to shut down the government. Don't want any deficit spending. They don't want, you know, they, they're they like, let's just get rid of the entire social safety net. We don't need health care. We don't need anything but a military and tax cuts. That's what we believe in. Then you've got the Trump wing, right? This Trump wing doesn't care about governance at all. They don't care about policy at all. The Freedom Caucus guys at least believe in policy. The Matt Gates and the Lauren Boebert's there. That's why they're always jumping around to all these conferences. They're more interested in the theater than they are in actually governing. They don't care about governing. But those right. are the three wings of the party. And they're nationalists, by the way. They say it very clearly. I'm an America first nationalist. And what that means is I will use government if it punishes my enemies. We will outlaw abortion. We will outlaw same-sex marriage. We are opposed to anything transgender. These are culture warriors that want to and are willing to use the power of government to direct society. That's different than the Freedom Caucus. And it's way different than the establishment wing. Got it. Now, two more questions. One is, um, if this backbencher, I was thinking Stefanik would want to be speaker, but from what you're saying, it doesn't sound like anybody wants it. Um, Stefanik was a big, big loser in this. Huge loser. Yeah. She was the first one to nominate Kevin McCarthy. Big, big mistake. So, look, politics is, you know, anybody, a lot of people come back. Right? Every, every, a lot of politicians come back. But the big losers at this point in time are Kevin's obviously the biggest one. Stefanik is a huge loser in this. Marjorie Taylor Greene is a huge loser in this. Donald Trump is a huge loser in this. Huge. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty surprised about about that. Yeah. Um, but so if the backbencher comes from the Freedom Caucus, how strong of a speaker would that person be? And no then one, I want you to get a no little one, bit into Santos. No one's going to be a big. No one's going to be a strong speaker. It's impossible. Okay. Which is why nobody wants it. Anybody with half a brain or a little bit more brain than ego knows that it's a horrible place to be. And it's probably a career ender because you're not going to last very long. Even Paul Ryan knew that Paul Ryan didn't want to be speaker because he knew that the, he knew the politics of the conference. And that was when it was good. Those were the good old days. It's far worse now. The only reason Kevin wants the job is because he's, he's dreamed about it since he was a little boy, like literally, like most people in politics dream of becoming president. He dreamed of becoming the speaker of the house. That's what he's always wanted. Okay. So no, is there going to be a strong speaker? No. And even if they are a strong, let's say, let's say somebody does Moses parts the red sea and a new speaker comes down and, 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 and leads them, you know, to the Holy land. Let, let's say that's what happens. I know I'm getting my parables messed up because Moses didn't make it all the way, but let's say, let's say somebody leads them. Let's lead the Republicans into the Holy land. Okay. What are you going to get? You get a bunch of bills passed that meet the muster of your crazy caucus. They're not going to get out of the Senate. Biden's not going to sign it. You get nothing for it. There is literally no upside to being a Republican speaker at this point in time. It is 99% downside. So nobody wants it. And those, those people that do want it are the crazy, dangerous 
performative ones where all they're going to do is spend their time going after Hunter Biden and trying to impeach, you know, Joe Biden and putting Dr. Fauci, calling him up for questioning. Like that, that's what the next 18 months are going to look like, which is why no one's going to remember this speaker fight. I mean, nerds like me will that think about these things and read the politics because that's what we do. But it, by summer, no one's no one's going to care. We may have two more speakers by summer, by the way. Very good chance that we elect a speaker who's thrown out in 45 days and another one comes in for 45 days and another one comes in for 30 days or two weeks or two months. It's a very good chance there's three or four speakers by the next presidential election cycle because of the wow. dynamics of just that one. So my, my last question was about George Santos, who just put another negative in his column then because he was pushing for Kevin McCarthy. And no one cares. What, what happens with him? I mean, there's just so much stuff with him. And the I, people I in the district yeah. are pretty pissed off out here and, you know, in New York. DeSantis, DeSantis has a glass jaw. That's the first thing. No, it's not Santos. George Santos. Oh, stop talking about George Santos. <laughs> stop. He was pushing for Kevin McCarthy. Enjoy the comedy of that. That's just okay. any stuff. I mean, I, he's your member, so I know it's got to be driving you crazy. Well, actually, he's not mine. The maps were so screwed up in New York. I okay. actually had to ask somebody to fig- help me figure it out. They were just so messed up. Yeah, don't. Santos, Santos will be unelected in, in two years. Um, they need his vote. The, the, the Republicans need his right. vote. So everyone's, no one's talking to him. You see him isolated. No one wants to be pictured with him because it'll be used on mail. He's becoming a national figure. But unless the recall starts now, there's really no point in electing a member of the House of Representatives. Because the people at, the people in the district are pretty pissed off and taking all kinds of action. But Well, they should, and, and, and it's unfortunate the way that it happened. But the mm. truth of the matter is he's not going anywhere. He will lose in two years, but okay. he's just going to sit there by himself and vote the way leadership, whoever leadership is, tells him how to vote. All right. Thanks, Mike. Thanks. You bet. Thanks for calling in. Next caller. I think it's a new caller. Anai, am I getting that spelling right? Go ahead and unmute. And we'll take your question. Anybody else want to jump into the queue too? Go ahead and do that. But for the moment, we're going to wait on, I think it's Anai. Oh, we lost her. Um, Well, look. I mean, let me give it a couple seconds. Let me get some questions. Um, I know that there are questions out there. Everyone's just a little bit nervous or worried to ask, uh, especially when I went through something so esoteric as the politics of the House conference and electing a speaker. Um, but otherwise, we can just kind of wrap up here. Things are uh, really, really busy on this end. Working on a book, I think you guys know I've been talking about that um, and just got back from um, 48 hours of absolute hell um, traveling. So I'm trying to recover a little bit. There's our callers. I knew, I knew you guys just a little bit shy. I think you guys are probably a little bit hung over from the holidays. But James, how are you? All right, you? Mike. How are you today? Besides what you just Good to said. Hear from you. <laughs> Were you able to follow this? Did this make yes, sense? Yes, it does. I, I actually was on the call with the Jennifer Horn, but I had a leave. I had something mm-hmm. that came up. But uh, the one thing that did come up that I know you, you didn't think much of it, but Who's in charge there right now? <laughs> I mean, no, no, no one's in charge. You mean literally who's in charge? Of yeah, the house? because like, say something did did someone brought that up on Jennifer's call? If something happens, I mean, yes, you still have the Senate and you still have the president, right? But yeah, I, I push back a little bit on Jennifer and Jim because there's 
people saying this is bad for democracy or it's a national security threat. I mean, look, nobody in the House of Representatives is involved in national security issues except through by the committee process. If the Russians decide to bomb Washington, D.C., no one's calling the Speaker of the House and asking them for anything. They'll call them and alert them and say, hey, the Russians are flying some MiGs in. We've got some trouble. Joe Biden's the guy making the call. The commander in chief is the guy who's defending the country. Okay. So the House is the only national security involvement. And I'm not, I'm not trying to downplay it right yeah. now. Like I said, the longer this goes, it could become an issue. But it's not a national security problem right now. Okay? It's not like the government is under threat at the moment or we've been completely destabilized. That's not what's happening. If this goes on for two or three weeks or you know four or five weeks, then yeah, it becomes a problem because we're not going to be putting a spending bill together and we're not able to put the appropriations together to keep the government running. That's not what's happening. Right now, it's just an embarrassing devolvement of the Republican Party and we should be concerned that one of the great great parties of a two-party system is collapsing. That's the biggest threat. It's not threat. It's not an existential threat to the country. It's not an existential threat to the government. It's not even a danger to national security. I, I don't believe that. Maybe in a week, every day starts to get more and more like that. But for the moment, that's not what we're facing. Like I said, if there's a national security threat, nobody's calling the House representatives and going, Hey, Congress member, what should we do? Like, right? If we had to declare right. war, like that, that, that doesn't happen in five minutes. Like it happens over a period of weeks. And again, we should, if we're worrying about the declaration of war, shit's way worse than what's going on on the floor of the house right now. Like, don't worry about yeah. that. Don't, don't allow, don't, don't go down that rabbit hole. That's not, that's not, those aren't things that we need to be worried about right now. I'm not saying they don't need to get their shit together. They do. I'm not saying it's not problematic. It is. But let's put it in perspective of what the problem is. It's not a threat to Congress. It's not a threat to the Republic. It's not a threat to the democracy. It's just right. not. Maybe in a month. Maybe in a month. But right now, the biggest threat is to one of the great political parties. And I say great, not in that it's a great thing. But the, the duopoly that we've built, the stability of our system, that's what's becoming upended. This could all be resolved tomorrow. I don't think it will be. I think it's going to be four, five, six days. If it takes a week to resolve itself, it will be a peculiar curiosity. It's not going to. It's not going to destabilize the government. Right. I mean, I, I don't know how. I don't, I'm I'm going to have to go back and, and read up on it again, but or or more into it. But how the Whig Party kind of collapsed prior to the Civil War. Is there any uh, yeah, parallels should... to what's going on now? Do you? Not really. I mean, no, oh, no, not really. Because again, the the Whigs, and again, I don't want to get too deep into to the Whigs, yeah. right? And the slavery abolitionism. Yeah. yeah, slavery. Yeah, we were heading towards a civil war, and there were unresolvable issues. The Whigs were much more of a transactional party, and 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 abolitionism. Um, you know, the know nothings, which was yes. which which they devolved into the know nothing party, was really a white supremacist party. And, and, and that was an element of the Whigs, right? The, the Democrats were slavers. Yeah. The Northerners were, were were split between white supremacists and abolitionists. And they worked in the Whig Party because they were trying to preserve union, essentially. What happens is that becomes untenable. And the abolitionists get together and say, 
you, you can't be for white supremacy or, or slavery, essentially. That's, that's a real elementary crude way of saying it. Uh, so the Whig Party devolves and the know, the know nothings kind of take over. Lincoln uh, and, and, and um, Stewart, William Stewart of New York, really start to drive abolitionism as a national force to say, you know what, we need to create a party that's going to stop slavery. That, that will that will limit it because if we don't remember again, I, want, I hate to get too far down the road on this, but 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 Lincoln Lincoln uh, Lincoln wasn't trying to to eliminate no, slavery; no. he was trying to contain it. Right. He was trying to say no, we shouldn't right. allow any more slave states to come in. Yeah. That didn't mean he didn't want to end slavery. He knew practically politically that if he came out and said that, that there would be a civil war. It happened anyway. Right. But, but he, he was not running on a platform of ending slavery. He was running on a platform of preserving union. And the way to preserve the union, to keep us together, was to limit the growth of slavery. That's what he believed. Now, he was wrong. He was yeah. wrong. Uh, but but that, that's how the Republican Party is born. But uh, I do see some similarity or little, little parallels here with you do have, and this would bother me also, you'll see people like today, I'm watching this craziness going on. And you have the crazies, as that's what they are. They're the crazies. They'll, they'll use the yeah. blanket word that, of being conservative. They'll actually yeah. use it as a cloak. And they're not. And yeah. they're not. Yeah, they're trying to make – no, it's not. They're trying to make their ideas acceptable. They're trying to normalize their ideas. But I, that's why I think conservative – I'm still conservative. I don't, I've, never, you know, I've never made any proclamations different than that. I believe the way to help the least among us is through a, a, a philosophy of government that I believe would work better than what we have as options right now, including, and I would argue, especially the Democratic Party. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I live in, I live in the bluest state in America and it has the largest poverty problem and it's getting worse and it's out of control and we just keep doubling down on bad policies. Like I'm very proud of what I believe in because of why I believe it. You may disagree with it. That's okay. That's what a democracy is. But that's what I believe in. Conservatism has been completely bastardized by the media and by extremists for a reason. They're trying to normalize those beliefs. They are a greater threat than the Democratic Party ever, ever, ever has been since the 1850s to me, which is why I work against it now. Well, so I'm trying to you know, contain it and eliminate it. But yeah, they're not conservatives. And like, for example, you, like you just mentioned before, you have a, a faction that wants to take away the whole the entire social safety net, like eliminate social security. Well, you would impoverish the majority of the country. That would not go over very well, at least not in the, with the people I know. And yeah, that's, those, those, that's, that's anti-government. Conservatives aren't anti-government. They are pro-limited government. It's a very big difference. Yeah. So I, agree with you. I see though, I mean, I don't know if we're not, we're, I don't think we're there yet, but it's like, you push the conservative, real conservative, so to say, who believe in the these you know these concepts um, like social security. You know, you push them far enough because you want to control everything and eliminate abortion and all that. They're they're going to retaliate. They got to eventually. I mean, you get you can only be scared for so long, and then you you have to do something. And I'm not talking about violence. I'm talking about political muscle. Um, if you follow me, 
I, yeah, I mean, to, to the extent that I do, I, 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 I agree with you that the seeds of extremism um, have have been have taken root in the American right. There is no question about that. We need to be very careful on what we equate with those groups. I, I, I hear all of this all the time is, you know, people say, oh, you're Republicans showing and you were complicit in creating all of this. And it's like, I guess as much as you are complicit in, you know, the rise of Fidel Castro and Joseph Stalin, just because you're a Democrat and you believe in government doesn't make you a communist, doesn't make you an authoritarian any more than being a conservative makes you, you know, a, a right wing extremist. It's just this is unhealthy way that we talk about it to each other now is and, and anyway, I, mean, I think it's probably a topic for another day. I, I, I do hear and respect what you're saying. Um, there needs to be a different characterization of what is happening on the American right. I believe that, especially because the right is splintering. It, and there is no such thing as uh, the, the conservatism, the classical conservatism that has defined Ameri the American right from the end of the Second World War up until 2016 is a very small lane now. And none of us are in power. <laughs> none of us are. Okay. There's an emergent populist nationalism that has taken root in the Republican Party. It is not conservatism. It is populism. It is nationalism. It is founded on a very different belief system than small government conservatism. It, it doesn't care about government being small or big. It cares about government being used for its own purposes to advance its own worldview. That's authoritarianism. Right. That's what I'm working against. That's what I'm spending my time and life and energy fighting against. That's the greatest threat to the American experiment at this point in time. To the point where I will support policies I don't agree with 90% of the time with the Democratic Party to meet the ends. That's a coalition I'm willing to join to help them stay and keep in power, even though I don't think their policies are good, because there is a threat to the country. So you hear people on the news today, and I don't think it's going to happen, but talking about whatever conservatives are left in the Congress, and from listening to you, it doesn't sound like there's a lot of them, but enough of them decide with the Democrats to try to, like, end this. I think it's never going to happen, but that... I think no, man, because that's what you're saying you, that you're doing. Yeah, look, you, you were on Jennifer's show. You heard this. People were saying, can't we get six Republicans to vote for Hakeem Jeffries? No, no. no. Look, look, what, look what happened to Adam Kinzinger. Okay? He, he, he does the right thing. And the Democrats screwed him in redistricting. The Democrats are not, they're not his friend. They're not his friend. Okay. <laughs> they, they will do, the Democrats will take every opportunity to screw a Liz Cheney, to destroy the career of an Adam Kinzinger. That's what they do. I don't blame them. That's their job. But let's be honest about it. Like, if you think you're going to get six Republicans to be like, oh, I'll do the right thing, I'll vote for Hakeem Jeffries, and the Republicans or the Democrats are somehow going to support that person? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Democrats are, these are not your friends politically. They're not your friends. They may be personally, but they're not going to protect you. They're going to do everything they can to destroy you. If you don't believe me, ask Adam yeah. Kinzinger. That's what happens. That's what happens to Republicans that do the right thing. And that, that's why you, that's why you'll never get bipartisanship. So, yeah. Yeah. Conservatism controlled or influenced by billionaires are bad too. The same, same as progressives. And if you don't think that billionaires aren't, aren't controlling progressives too, then yeah. oh, come on, you're out of your mind. Of course. James, i got to run. Yeah. I've got four other people in the queue, brother. Thank you so much for the question. Love having you. Esther, thank you for waiting. Thanks for your patience. 
Oh, no problem. It, I really enjoyed your analysis. It helped clarify quite a bit of what I've seen over the last two days. Um, so I have three questions if they don't take too long and let me know if you've already covered some of it. I might have missed hearing it. Uh, okay. the, debt, the debt ceiling. How do you see that playing out? Is that potentially one of the issues over which we might see a change of speaker? Yes, no question. That's probably one of the biggest threats because trying to get Republicans to support that is going to be a nightmare. I think that will probably cost a speaker their speakership. I think you will probably see the entire Democratic caucus go up with enough Republicans to get the debt ceiling passed. The, the danger is always is going to become most of these Republicans that vote for a majority with the majority of Democrats will get primaried and they will lose. If you vote for anybody, that's why that's, you know, like uh, this idea that Republicans are going to vote for, for Democrats because it's the right thing to do is what Democrats see their own world. What Democrats do is the right thing to do. That's how Democrats think. That's how Republicans think, by the way, is everyone believes, oh, if you vote for my party, you're doing the right thing. So when, if you did get 10, 20 Republicans to go up, the chances of them being successful in, in surviving the next primary when you voted with Hakeem Jeffries and the Democrats to lift the debt ceiling, good luck. You're done. But you're saying there because the number needed is small, there are enough of them that will be willing to do that. No, they, I, I'm not saying they – I'm saying the chances are greater, but I'm not, I'm not saying that they're good. I mean – Look, when the when the margins are this thin and the leadership on the right is so weak and the leadership uh, leadership on the left is so untested, um, the best thing Hakeem Jeffries has going for him is Nancy Pelosi is still sitting in there helping him. If, if this dude was there on his own devices, he'd get chewed up and eaten up. We, not just because he's a, he, he isn't a strong leader. He may or may not be. Nobody knows. It's because we're in a completely untested environment. Completely. Nancy Pelosi... Does, doesn't know what this no, nobody alive has seen this these types of dynamics doesn't make it a bad thing by the way it's not something to be afraid of it just means I, I would say it's, it's sort of the excitement of being frightened yeah i guess it's a good way it's like a roller coaster <laughs> i mean <laughs> the, the stakes are very real i don't want to say it's not serious it is but sure. this is like donald trump you know turning fire hoses on black lives matter protesters that's not that's not this is not what this is it's not what this is I think what you, there's a very real chance, like I said, as the Republican Party atomizes and fractionalizes, the same thing could happen on the left. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. If both parties get weaker, I, I'm not saying it's a good thing, but I'm also not saying it's a bad thing. I'm saying I don't know. Nobody knows. We can all speculate. And people who love their Democratic Party because they hate the Republicans probably won't like it. And okay, fine, I get that. I'm not concerned about parties, as you all know by now. I could care less about parties. I think they've done more damage at this point. I think parties are hurting the country more than they're helping them. People are like, I'm a Democrat more than I'm an American now. And they're certainly doing that as Republicans. Is that, is that good? Is that healthy? Yeah. Of course I'm it's a, I'm a former Democrat, now independent. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, I wish, and I, I wish everybody was. I'm really pushing for the open primaries and then ranked choice voting. I think that that's... Could help us a lot. Um, my second question: I understand this differentiation between the anti-government group and that you're drawing it bet between them and the Freedom Caucus as being less government, uh, mm -hmm. but they almost seem like not anti-government, but 
so thin as to be no government. I just don't see where they're really supporting a lot, if, if I understood what you were saying. Look, there are different gradations, and depending on where you sit on the political spectrum, I think it probably looks that way. There's no difference than saying, is there really a difference between Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Pete Aguilar? Probably not much, right? You know, Bernie Sanders is an avowed democratic socialist. Is there that much difference between him and the rest of the Democrats in the Senate? No, not really. Not really. So, I mean, yeah, we're talking about gradations here. Right. We're also talking about the forced voting that they have to take because you don't vote on the bills you want. You vote on the bills that are put that make it through. So I, I think it's really more the, the philosophy is what I'm trying to say is that glue is not holding things together. But the difference between a democratic socialist and a Democrat is not that much difference. There's not. It's the same way there's not that much difference between a, a Tea Party member and, the, and an establishment Republican. There's not that much difference. So you're just giving a demarcation to make it easier to understand the delineation. And yeah. my, what I'm trying to do is give you an understanding of why these, these members are, are motivated to vote and behave the way that they do. Yes. It's because I learned this in my, as a very young man in the business. The only man, I learned this from a political consultant, which is ironic, but he said the only, the only vote that really matters in Congress is the, is the organizational vote. It's the vote for the leader. It, because that tells you what's going to get to the floor and what's not. Everything else is theater. So if you have a majority, presumably, you're going to control everything that comes to the floor. That's that's the whole reason we go through all these battles and all these campaigns and Republicans and Democrats and throw billions of dollars and watch Steve Kornacki counting the math. Like, that's why we do it. It's who's going to have the majority. If you don't have the majority, it doesn't matter. Like the, the Democrats right now are like having fun and eating popcorn and playing theater because they don't have anything else to do. They're not in control of anything. They're, they're doing what they should do, which is you attack, you attack, you attack. What the Republicans are finding out is it's a hell of a lot easier to attack than it is to govern. Governing is really, really hard. Yes. Attack is really, really easy. If McCarthy had been remotely smart, would have held on to some things to give away at this point. No, There's nothing to give away. He gave it all away. So not remotely smart. Okay, that's my words, not yours. <laughs> so I'm going to end on a, a live yeah, note. Kevin's not a dumb guy. I mean, he's, yeah. he's getting a lot of this dumb guy shit. I, how many? The average person doesn't get to be that close to being speaker unless – I think he's just got a lot of bad choices and bad characters, what's happened. Right. He would rather climb the, the ladders of power than, 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 than be true to who he was. I, I'm just not that way. He is. And that doesn't make him dumb. It just makes him, you know. So on a lighter note, uh, I'm not going to talk about lettuce, but based on what you said before, it sounds like you think we might get through more speakers than the UK went through PMs, uh, but not in as short a time. I think that's a very real possibility. Well, exciting times. And I'm sure that uh, over the pond, they'll be laughing at us the way we might have had a chuckle about them. They're no longer going to look as bad as we thought they were, that we will look worse. I look, they, Boris Johnson got elected before Donald Trump, right? I mean, Brexit passed. A lot of these things, a lot of what happens in England is actually a precursor because, candidly, even though they're different government systems, it's not that different from the, the, from the states in our country that make up the, the deciding elements of our Congress, that, that's actually worth doing, worth doing another mic drop on. If you look at Britain, Great Britain from east to west, 
poor whites, uh, poor uneducated whites vote very conservatively. College educated whites live in the urban core and they vote very progressively. It's not unlike the electorate that controls this country. So in many ways, it, it kind of gives us some insight as to how, how things are going to play out. The urban centers were very opposed to Brexit. It was the rural areas that voted for it. Why? Nationalism. It was all based off of, let's get the hell out of the European Union. Let's, let's maintain our identity. When you Looking at other countries and what's going on currently in Israel, does that seem like even a potential path for the U.S.? I mean, are we sort of looking at what could possibly be a future path? Not that it's one I would want to choose or think that most Americans would choose, but it is a possibility, no? Anything's a possibility. I mean, Donald Trump could get elected president, right? Anything (laughs) anything can happen. But look, Israel, I'm really fascinated by Israel's politics. I went there about three years ago. And the main thing I learned, and then we'll jump to the next college here because we can't go on too long, but to understand Israel's politics is this. Netanyahu is a center-right leader of the, of the Likud party, right? But the, the, the right, the Orthodox Jews, they control politics because their faction is the only one that is growing. Israel's, the fastest growing segment of Israeli society are Orthodox Jews. Why? And there's two things about Orthodox Jews you need to understand. One is the men don't work. They, they study all day, and they're yeah. on government assistance. And they have a lot of children, and they vote very conservatively. And then when that's been going on for 30 years now, the, the progressive party, the, the party with you know people that went to college and, and are involved in the technology industry and the biotech and all these amazing things that are happening in Israel, they don't have seven kids. They get like two kids, one kid. Large, right. gay, po- large gay population with no kids. Seven kids. The, the center left is literally numerically shrinking. You have to remember the population of Israel is not that big. These have these big ramifications. So on the right, what you have is you have supporters of a welfare state because the Orthodox Jews are on welfare and they have tons of kids and they vote extremely conservatively, culturally and socially and politically. And Netanyahu needs that vote, which is why their politics are getting more conservative. In fact, Israeli politics are fascinating because what's happening with the drivers of the society there, it's this amazing innovation state. So much amazing stuff is happening, but it's not happening with the fastest growing segment of their political area. So their their politics are going to get very, very conservative. It's going to be, that's all that's going to be left essentially in, in 20 years is the Orthodox. That's what's growing. Nobody else is having seven kids. So that's, I think this is topic for another show because it's so complex. Yeah, exactly. So that it, it's yeah, we should do that. I'll bring a guest on to kind of talk about. I'm I'm fascinated by his Israeli politics. Yeah, me too. Okay, Esther, thank you so much. You bet, Josh, my man, my guy. How you been? Hello, Josh. Can you hear me? Yeah, I hear you. Can you hear me? Uh, yeah, I can hear you. Um, I just want to say that I agree with you that, you know, a couple of weeks from now, three weeks from now, people forget about this, you know, speaker debacle when they finally do get a speaker, whoever that is. But um, I'm, I think everybody would probably agree that it's also the beginning of a 
long accumulation of just total dysfunction and weirdness and chaos. And that now everybody gets to see that what Mega does and they get the power they fucking want. And now, and so people are going to be able to contrast that now with the Senate and the House, or excuse me, the Senate and the White House. And so how do you think that bodes? Because I think Democrats would retake the, the House in 2024, but how do you think that bodes for the presidential election? Seeing this contrast between yeah. the other... Well, I mean, look, those of you guys that have been following my show for a while have said the best possible thing for the Democrats would be to have the Democrats pick up a seat in the Senate, literally said that, and the Republicans win a majority of less than 10, right? Everybody, give me a thumbs up if you guys remember me all saying this. I said this all last year, right? That is the best case scenario for Joe Biden. That That is the best case scenario for the country. It's the best case scenario for the Democrats. It's the best case scenario for Joe Biden because, as I mentioned you know, earlier in the show, this shit show is just starting. No one's going to remember this speakership fight as bad as it's going to be because there's going to be 30 things far crazier and far worse that the Republicans are going to do. That's going to make Joe Biden look like the guy that, you know, the, 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 the voice of reason. People keep going, oh, is he going to dump Kamala? She's so bad. Or he looks insane or he's old. And I, I don't care if the guy is, I mean, I, I don't mean that. Well, look, you don't even have to be conscious to be a Democrat and get reelected with what's coming up. That's why I don't care who the – there's no difference between Trump and DeSantis in the way this is going to come out in the Electoral College. Tucker Carlson scares me a little bit. But, it, but beyond that, everybody else, Biden, Biden beats all of them handily. I mean, it's not going to be an 84 Reagan-style blowout. That's not going to happen again in our lifetimes. But it's going to be you know, a comfortable win in the Electoral College because – negative partisanship. I mean, I want to get into that again, but people vote against stuff. They're going to see the crazy. They're watching this right now. This is all setting the narrative of who they are, but this is just the beginning. This is just the beginning. Yeah. Um, I, what do you think? I mean, this I, it is just beginning and it's going to, there's going to be some, you know, I keep wanting to say there's going to be like a critical mass, but it's just like there's just no bottom with this shit. But what in your eyes, if you thought about it, is just the next thing after this? I mean, let's say Biden, assuming he runs again, which I think he will, but let's say he wins. And I agree with all of this, uh, you know, negative voting you and others are talking about, but what happens after this. I mean, what are what do Republicans, because you're right, they don't have never Trumpers anymore. And that just no. dawned me. Those guys are gone. I mean, like, what the fuck happens to the GOP after I don't, the next I mean, if, if that that is where the comparisons between what happened to with the know-nothings and the Whigs does does come into play because there is a racial component, there is a racial component to all of this. But this idea that there's like some middle, like people, there's a middle, that's just, people don't, anybody who subscribes to that, it drives me crazy. There's no evidence of that. There is no freaking evidence of that. There's tons of evidence that we could have a very fractured multi-party system, right? So what is, to me, what it depends on what the Democrats do. If the Democrats get their shit together and start developing a working class agenda, like a real working class agenda, and start talking to working class people again, not through like the lens of 
How big is Biden's Build Back Better plan? How big is his infrastructure plan? How many working class people do you know that actually give a shit about that stuff? None of them do. Nobody, yeah. nobody, nobody believes yeah. in that stuff. The Democrats think that that's how you talk to working class people. It's not. If the Democrats could figure out how to talk to working class people, it would devastate the Republican Party and it would splinter in two, probably three. Until yeah. that happens, until that happens, there is some anti-democratic glue that will be, bring these disparate coalitions back under the umbrella of the Republican Party. But I don't think it's going to last very long. The answer to your question is depends on if the if the Democrats can figure it out or not. If they can, they'll yeah. bankrupt the Republicans, and it will happen in the next couple of years. If not, no. Remember, the Senate map looks terrible for the Democrats in 2024. It's it's yeah. it's terrible. The Republicans, even if the Republicans run Herschel Walker and Dr. Oz and Carrie Lake and, and you know, Laxalt again, the chances of them winning the Senate are very, very, very good. But but I think the Democrats' chance of winning the White House are very, very, very good. Josh, I, I got to jump to this last call. I got to do a TV hit, okay, so I'm going to do this last that, call. Brother, it's great talking to you. We're going to do this show all year, so you'll be back. We'll talk to you. One last question, and then we'll kind of wrap up. Yeah, well, I just want you to comment about um, the Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Alaska, where Democrats and Republicans work together. It like, you know. In Pennsylvania? Yeah, well, yeah, the, what do you call the state house, where they elect the Democrat. Well, the Democrat that quit and then become independent and then, I guess the centrist, Republican, well, me, the non-crazy. Yeah, I, I mean, look, I think rather than centrist, I mean, I guess it's, I guess there is an argument kind of for centrism, but really what it means is that the extremes of both parties have left these players alone. And what I mean by alone is they've left them because the parties, Reagan famously said, I didn't leave the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party left me. Like that's what's happening to Reagan Republicans now is mm. I, didn't, I haven't changed my belief system. The Reagan, the, you know, I'm, I'm the same Republican I was 30 years ago. It's just the Republican Party has completely lost its freaking mind. That doesn't mean that there's a group of people in there that want to work on centrist policy. It does mm. not mean that. We've got we've to disabuse ourselves of that notion. That's not what that means. Just because the parties are getting more extreme doesn't mean that there's this mass in the middle where moderate Democrats and moderate Republicans are going to start working together and start singing Kumbaya. That's not what that means. What it means is there's a better chance that there will be four parties than there will be three. And it just requires us to look at it very differently. So okay. I don't know if that helped answer the question, but that's Yeah, what, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, I guess one last thing is that maybe Tucker Carlson or Fox News or whoever will be the one that helped to glue the Republican together and force them to vote for McCarthy. But Tucker Carlson hates Kevin McCarthy. Oh, uh, of somebody from, yeah, know, like the, the media is going to force them to say, hey, you need to elect this guy or, you know. Possibly. I mean, that's that's a possibility. I, just, I genuinely believe that this, the next Republican speaker will probably be somebody that we don't know anything about. You probably, have, I probably don't know their name. Look, I could be wrong. Right. Scalise, Scalise could put the votes together. Hell, Kevin McCarthy could pull this thing out of the ashes. I don't think so. Just the way that I'm reading the conference, there's nobody in the leadership. Jordan doesn't want it. Jordan shouldn't want it. He's going to get everything he wants without the burden of being speaker. That's what people don't realize is you, if you're a really smart legislator, you can get the committee assignment you want. You can get the, all of the demands you want met. And you get everything you want, including 
being the deliverer of votes to, to elect somebody speaker, that's far more powerful than being the speaker. That's where Jordan sits right now. Okay. Scalise, same thing. Like to me, it's either Steve Scalise or Jim Jordan. We're going to win this thing. Clearly none of them want it, or at least the timing isn't right yet. Kevin's not giving up and enough people are sticking with him to keep going through this rigmarole. But at some point, if those 10 votes hold, those 10 bigs votes hold, and remember they're at 21, but if those 10 votes hold, there's nowhere to go. Like Kevin, this game of chicken, Kevin does not win this game of chicken. He's going to lose and he's going to be humiliated in the process. Okay. Well, thanks a lot. Guys, thank thank you you so much. Appreciate you all joining us. It's great to be back on a great new year coming Wednesdays, 530 West Coast, 830 uh, East Coast. Bring your questions. I have no idea what we're going to talk about next week, but I'm sure it's going to be a great lively discussion. Thanks for joining. Thanks for your support. And we'll talk to you next Wednesday.